How are you doing? You alright? Yes? Uh, wave a hand in the air if you've been on your summer holiday already. Okay, you've probably had the best weather. Wave on your hand in the air if you're about to go on summer holiday. Yeah, well, let's pray. Um, see how we do. It's great to see you here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Paul. I'm part of the leadership here. And um, we're partway through a series, a little mini-series for the summer, on the heroes of the faith. So we're looking at characters um, through history who have just led an exemplary life that we can learn from. And the, the idea of studying this is so that we can learn from their lives that we might make an impact and make a difference in the world around us. And um, if, uh, if you hear this first service or um, have heard of this before, you'll know we're looking at the story of a man called Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini. Now, I know immediately what you're thinking the moment I say those words. Oh no, not another talk on Louis Zamperini, because I'm sure you've heard dozens of them. My hope this morning is obviously that this morning's talk will be slightly different to all the other Louis Zamperini talks that you've heard. Um, it's a story of adventure, of romance, survival, forgiveness, and sharks. So kids, do pay attention as we go through. Um, kids, I've got, um, I've got some handout sheets for, to give round to you. So I've got a team that's going to pass those round. Now we've got on here some... Um, drawings that you can colour in on the back, but we've also got a word search, and you can circle the different words, and as I talk, uh, circle them and see if you can catch all of them as I go through the talk. Shall I switch to this? How's that? Is that... Okay, we're going to switch mics at this point. Okay. How's that? Is that sounding any... There we go. Yes, we're in business. Everybody happy with that? Great. All right. Okay. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So who was Louis Zamperini, I hear you ask? Um, I guess most of us will have heard of Bear Grylls. Wave a hand in the air. Heard of Bear Grylls? Yes. A man who lives on tree bark and occasionally drinks his own wee. He's that tough. Bear Grylls said of Louis Zamperini that he was the, his ultimate wartime survival hero. So if Bear Grylls thinks he's a really good guy, then he's worth listening to. And I guess it's appropriate to look at a wartime hero, particularly in the week where we've been commemorating those people who gave their lives in the First World War, but it also makes sense to bear in mind those people who sacrificed so much for us in the Second World War. Um, if you've never heard of Louis Zamperini before, chances are you will as well by the end of the year because Angelina Jolie has directed a movie called Unbroken that's going to come out, I think it's on Christmas Day this year. So I thought it'd be good to look at this subject, to look at this area, so that we can look at it, if you like, before it gets the Hollywood spin on it, if you know what I mean, and tell a little bit of the story. So you ready? We're going to dive in. Um, Louis was born uh, on the 26th of January 1917. And uh, in many senses, he was a lot like lots of other kids. He looked very similar to many of the, the others in his Italian community. Uh, but God had a purpose for his life. Psalm 138 says that God has purposes uh, for each of our lives. And he grew up in a place called Torrance in California. And when he was around seven or eight, uh, he started getting bullied at school. Kids, some of you may know what that's like. And so he's being picked on by other kids in the school and kicked and punched in the playground. But his dad wanted to help him with that, so his dad taught him how to box. And it turned out that Louis was something of a natural athlete. So not only did he learn to box fairly quickly, but when the bullies started picking on him, he started winning the fights. So much so that he actually started looking for fights. And he developed a thirst for violence and aggression. And he became known as the terror of torrents. That's how, how much trouble he used to get into. He started out with good intentions, but it all went a bit wrong. By the time Louis was 15, he was in all kinds of trouble. Uh, he developed a reputation as someone who liked violence and aggression. 
So his older brother came up with an idea. He said, look, he's obviously got lots of energy and ability. Let's try and channel that energy and ability into something else. So what his, his brother did is he took him down to the local athletics track. And he got him into running instead of fighting. And it turned out that Louis was actually an extremely good athlete. He used to say this, I made up my mind to run everywhere. Instead of hitchhiking to the beach four miles away, I ran to the beach. All summer long, that's what I did. I ran. I piled up a lot of miles, but I had no idea how fast I could run. It turned out he had a real talent for running and athletics. So, so much so that in 1934, Louis broke the high school world record for running the mile. And he ran a mile in four minute two seconds, which isn't bad going. In fact, he did so well, that he unexpectedly got selected for the Olympic Games. And he was chosen to represent America in Berlin. So in 1936, he traveled by boat and ran in the same Olympics that Jesse Owens ran. And he ran the 5,000 meters and finished in the fastest ever time for an American. And he felt like, well, I'm on the path to international fame and glory and success. And he was on track to run in the 1940 Olympics in Japan, thinking that's going to be my platform for fame and success and fortune. Except that in 1939, World War II broke out. And when the Japanese Empire bombed Pearl Harbor, all of a sudden, America was dragged into the war. And in a twist of fate, he was selected to join the Air Force, and although he hated flying, he ended up as a gunner on a bomber in the Second World War in the Pacific. And he flew in a plane like this, it's called a B-24. And uh, they were known as very um, unreliable bombers. The, the engines weren't that brilliant, and they were big and unwieldy and difficult to fly. One pilot wrote of flying a B-24, it was like sitting on the front porch and flying the house. That was what the aerodynamics of this thing were like. And of course, it was dangerous work too. On one mission, their plane ended up with 690 different bullet holes in it from enemy artillery fire. They've got a photo up on the screen of one of the holes from a cannon shell that burst through the fuselage and just skims Louis' face. Once again, it was almost like God was keeping Louis alive for a purpose. So one day, they were sent out on a search and rescue mission into the Pacific. Not that far, about 200 miles from their base. And they arrived at the search zone. But as they were circling and looking for some survivors from a plane crash, their own plane ran into trouble. And first, one engine failed. And then the engineer who went to fix that engine actually managed to turn the second engine off. So they lost all their engines on the left-hand side of the plane. Well, with that, of course, and the poor aerodynamics, this plane started to dip. The pilot did his best, but they careered closer and closer to the ocean until finally the left wingtip and the nose hit the water at the same time. The plane toppled and cartwheeled over and over and over again and then burst into flame. Fortunately, Louis was flung from the plane unconscious, and he came to underwater looking up at the surface way above him. So he managed to swim to the surface of water, the water. And when he got there, he found two other survivors uh, from his plane crash. Unfortunately, he managed to get hold of two very small life rafts, which were to mean the difference between life and death for them. I've got a picture of just these tiny life rafts, like a little dinghy that you might play in at the sea. That's what they were in. And they hauled themselves into these life rafts. They fully expected that because they were near their base, that their uh, other American Air Force men would find them over a short period of time. However, after two days, they realized that they were on their own. 
they found themselves alone in 65 million square miles of ocean with no supplies, no drinking water, and no food. They drifted for days and then weeks, and then the sharks came. Reef and mako sharks started to circle around them. They were even terrorized by a great white shark at one point. All they had were these tiny little paddles that they would bash at the sharks' noses as they came closer. And of course, the weaker they got, the harder it got to fend off the sharks. You can imagine what that would have been like for them. Rainwater was the only thing they had to drink, and it didn't rain too often during that time. In terms of food, the only food they had was when some poor unfortunate albatross landed on their raft. They grabbed the thing and then ate it raw and tried to use bits of the meat as bait for other fish to come up. Up until this point in his life, Louis hadn't needed anything from anyone. He lived his whole life by his own talents and abilities. His ability to win any fight, to win any race, to make his own decisions. But then all of a sudden, he finds himself in this situation. And he realized that his own abilities and talents, his self-reliance, wouldn't get him through. He'd run out of his own resources. And of course, the truth is for each one of us that sooner or later, we will come across a situation or a circumstance that's just too big for us just too tough for us. Maybe you face that now in school in terms of difficulty in lessons or bullying or problems in your family. Maybe you find that in the workplace or extended family issues. Sooner or later we'll come across something that's too big for us and we haven't got it in ourselves to fix it. Psalm 33 says this, no king succeeds with a big army alone. No warrior wins by brute strength. Horsepower is not the answer. No one gets by on muscle alone. Watch this. God's eye is on those who respect him, the ones who are looking for his love. He's ready to come to their rescue in bad times. In lean times, he keeps body and soul together. You know, sometimes it takes a tragedy or a difficulty for us to realize just how frail we are and how much we need God. Maybe you find yourself in circumstances like that right now. But the good news is God loves to meet us in our point of desperation. Louis wrote this about his time on the raft. He said this, the sun is your friend early in the morning when you're cold, and then very quickly it's brutal the rest of the day. When you're on a life raft at sea, it's much worse than being in a foxhole. They say there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Well, you can multiply that many times on a raft. That's all you do on a raft. I don't care if you're an atheist or what you are. When you reach the end of your rope and there's nowhere else to turn, your atheism isn't going to help you. You're going to turn and look up. And that's what we all did on the raft, was pray morning, noon, and night. And so he prayed this prayer repeatedly as he knelt on the life raft. He said, God, if you will save me, I will serve you forever. In total, the airmen spent 47 days bobbing around in the ocean in those tiny rafts. 47 days. That's like the equivalent of you getting in a raft today and not coming out of the raft until the 26th of September. Finally, on the 47th day, the men sighted land. They felt initially great relief, and they washed up on an island called Watje Island after having traveled over 2,000 miles in the open sea. Sadly, though, any delight was short-lived because exhausted, the men realized very quickly they'd landed on a Japanese-held island. The soldiers met them on the beach, and a situation that seemed bad just suddenly got a whole lot worse. They were immediately imprisoned 
by the Japanese soldiers. From there, the men were taken to a secret camp in Yokonama, just outside Tokyo. No one knew that they were alive. In America, the reports were that they'd all died at sea. And they lived in terrible squalid conditions in these prisoner of war camps. You think of school dinners, kids? You'll be grateful for them after hearing this. They existed on little balls of rice that the guards would throw between the bars, but they would throw them onto the ground. So then they had to root around in amongst the straw and the dirt and the wrap droppings and pick out each individual grain of rice and pop it in their mouth. After a while, some of the prisoners complained and said to the guards that we're not getting any meat. We need some protein in our diet. And then Louis wrote this about the response from the Japanese. They learned never to do it again because a truck turned up delivering rotting fish. Louis writes this, even before the driver dumped it into the trough, the smell overpowered us and the whole mass seemed to move. In fact, it was moving, it being infested with thousands of maggots. I helped shovel the mess into big soup tureens. We all got the result hot the next morning. The maggots floated lazily on top as if in their own private swimming pools. Some guys considered the maggots nutritious, so they guzzled them up only to throw up afterwards. Then at night, they would be victim to all the mosquitoes in the camp and huge insects called sand fleas that would drop from the ceiling into their beds. But worse than the food and the accommodation were the prison guards. Many of them were really brutal and cruel. There were regular beatings and humiliation. The men did what they could for revenge, so Louis managed to get a role as the camp barber, helping cut people's hair and that sort of thing. One day, a guard called the Weasel, that was his nickname, lay in, in, in Louis's chair, and whilst he was asleep, Louis shaved off his eyebrows. So he did little things that they could to have their revenge, but they were short-lived. The worst of all the guards, though, was a man called Mutsuhiro Wanapi. The prisoners nicknamed him The Bird. Uh, maybe you know what it is to have someone in your life who just makes your life really, really difficult. Uh, perhaps it's a boss that you struggle with, or a bully in the school playground, or even someone in your family. For Louis, it was this guy, the bird. Having someone like that around can dominate and totally shape your life. The bird discovered that Louis was an Olympic athlete, and that only made him more jealous of him, of his success, and he tried to make his life as difficult as he possibly could be for him. He would make the prisoners do things like standing and saluting a tree in the parade ground for night after night after night. So day and night, sort of 48 or so hours until they finally collapsed. He would do other things like he would force the other prisoners to punch other prisoners in the face as a kind of weird way of punishment. In one situation, he got 230 prisoners to stand in a line and one by one come and punch Louis. It felt like the suffering would never end to him. And then slowly and surely, circumstances started to change. Into the summer of 1945, the prisoners noticed some new planes in the sky. And they quickly realized they weren't the Japanese fighter planes, but were actually American bombers. And then one day, one of these bombers flew over their prison camp and dropped a whole load of cigarettes and sweets, but also some magazines. And on the front cover of the magazine was a picture of an atomic bomb exploding, with the words underneath saying, the war is nearly over. And then shortly after that, the guards left the camp and went into hiding. And they were quickly followed by American troops who finally came in and freed all of the soldiers. 
Louis was now, after a month, safe to return home. And he went back to the States and was given a hero's welcome. Crowds were there to welcome him and photographers as he was greeted by his family. It seemed like at that moment, everything was great. You know, here was Louis. He'd, um, he'd survived the war. He was um, a national hero. He actually even had lots of back pay from his years in prison. He was an athlete, and he was leading a comfortable life. He met a girl called Cynthia, and he married her, and they had a lovely little daughter. On the outside, everything looked great. Maybe that's you. You know, externally, everything looks fine, like you've got it all together. Except that the Bible says that it's the heart that matters the most. That it's out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths speak, that God isn't interested in the externals, but rather he judges the motivations of the heart. That God's interested in your heart, not your external appearance. It says this in Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, Louis was sick. Physically, he was very fit now, but his heart was made of stone. He couldn't shake his memories of the war. He was desperate to find this guy, the bird, and exact his revenge. That was the sole purpose of his life. He would have outbursts of anger against his family. He had no real control over his anger and emotions. He would get drunk just in order to be able to fall asleep at night. And then when he was asleep, every night he would have nightmares, the same nightmare over and over again. One night in bed, he had a nightmare about exacting his revenge and killing this guy, the bird. And he woke up only to discover that his hands were around his wife's neck. That was the breaking point as far as Cynthia was concerned. And she declared that their marriage was going to be over. She talked now about leaving Louis and taking her do- their daughter with her. And then one night, in the middle of all of this, Cynthia came home to give Louis some news. She said that there was a large marquee that had been erected near where they live on the corner of Hill and Washington Streets, and that a young preacher had set up this tent and was holding meetings nightly, and that thousands, hundreds at a time of people were flocking to these meetings. And the young preacher's name? Billy Graham. Louis said that he wanted nothing to do with this, though. Uh, He was too proud to admit he might have any needs. So Cynthia, in the end, was forced to go on her own. Late one night when Louis staggered in from the bar again, he noticed his wife and there seemed to be something different about her. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. She explained to him that she'd become a Christian that night and committed her life to God. And she asked Louis repeatedly to go with her. Louis put his foot down and said there was no way he was ever going to be going to that tent and there was no way he would be setting foot in one of those meetings. There was no way he would ever go. And as the man of the house, that was his decision. Except his wife had other ideas and a few days later he discovered himself in the meeting thinking, how did this happen? The truth was it was only, of course, his pride that kept him from going this far. But the deal he'd made with his wife was this. If we go to this meeting, I'll stay right up until the end when Billy says this thing about praying for people. When he asks everybody to bow their heads and pray, at that moment, I'm going to get up and we're going to go. So they sit there through the meeting, and to his surprise, Billy Graham's words start to cut Louis to the core. Billy Graham asked him two questions, asked the audience two questions that really struck him. The first was this, what kind of life are you living? And are you satisfied with this life that you're living? Louis tried to shrug it off, but these words had sunk really deep to him. And then at the end, Billy Graham said, well, let's bow our heads to pray. 
So what he did is he grabbed his wife's hand and said, right, this is our cue to go. And they shuffled their way along the rows. I think I've got a picture of Billy Graham's tent up here. They shuffled their way along the packed row until they got to the aisle with sawdust spread on it. And Louis described that this was like a seminal, a, a, a formative moment in his life. Because he realized he wasn't just at the crossroads with this aisle where he could go left or right, but actually he was at a crossroads with his life. He looked down at this sawdust aisle and he realized that to turn right meant going down to the front and admitting that he didn't have everything that it takes, that he had need of help, that he'd gone his whole life on his own abilities and resources, but he'd hit a wall and he needed saving, he needed rescuing himself. Or he could turn left and he could go back to his reliance on the drink and alcohol and his own abilities and his fame to get him through, except it wasn't working. And you know, I guess all of us ultimately come to a crossroads like that, where we, we go our own way or we say, actually, I have need of a savior. Ephesians 2 says this, and it could have described Louis in that moment. Now God has us where he wants us. That's what Louis was like in that moment. With all the time, his time in the world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough and let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. In that moment, Louis realized he couldn't save himself. And the truth is, neither can you or I. He turned right and made his way down to the front. And as he knelt at the front, he remembered his prayer on the life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. If you save me, I'll serve you forever. God was reeling him in. And in that moment, he decided to trust and follow Jesus with all his heart rather than drawing on his own resources. He said this, I got up off my knees and somehow I knew I was through getting drunk. I knew it. I also knew that I forgave all my guards, including the bird. I think the proof of that is that I had nightmares every night about the bird since the war up until that point. Then after the night I made the decision for Christ, I haven't had a nightmare since. That is some kind of miracle. Almost immediately, Louis knew that he needed to go back to Japan, not to find out, find out where the bird was and exact his revenge, but rather to go and demonstrate forgiveness to everybody that persecuted him. So in October 1950, he gained permission to go into the Sugamo prison where many of his former guards were housed. And he was able to meet many of them, look them in the eye, shake them by the hand, and tell them he forgave them. Some of them even became Christians in that moment. You see, Jesus said this, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Only one man evaded Louis' mission of forgiveness. The bird was still in hiding. Eventually, in 1952, the bird surfaced for the first time but refused to meet with Louis. So Louis did the next best thing he could. He wrote him a letter. Here's just a little snippet of what he wrote to Musashiro. He says this, Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a real struggle enough just to maintain dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. I love this next line. He says this, love has replaced the hate I had for you. Only Jesus can do that. Louis then lived out 
the power of forgiveness. He embodied it. Hope and acceptance characterized his life. In his final years, he started a charity called the Victory Boys Camp. And he took young lads who dropped out of school and provided them with outward bounds courses and survival skills in order to boost their confidence. Thousands of young men went through his program or were impacted by it. But there was one final act that seemed to bring Louis's life full circle. In 1998, he was selected to play a role in the Olympics once more. Louis then, in his 80s, carried the Olympic torch. And it just so happens that we have one here. This is Anne Godwin, who ran, stroke, walked with the Olympic torch for the 2012 Games. So thank you, Anne. Thanks so much. So this is it. Louis, Louis ran with a torch much like this one, except that he didn't run in the States. He was selected to run a leg in Japan that took him past his old prisoner of war camp. And in an amazing act of God's sovereignty, he was once again able to run with glory and triumph, but not for his own glory, and triumph, but he was able to hold the torch high and run past the prisoner of war camp as a symbol of what God had done in his life. Had God not encountered him, there was no way that he would be in a fit state. He would probably be drunk in a bar somewhere or maybe even dead. But God had rescued him. And so he was able to run past the camp in triumph, demonstrating God's rescuing of him. Psalm 138 says this, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. You know, God turns our defeats into his victory. He takes our broken lives and makes them whole in him. Louis lived on until he was 97. And he died on the 2nd of July, just last month. God took this ordinary boy and used him to impact the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And he will use his story through the forthcoming film to impact millions of people. I wonder what he wants to do through your life. So as we close, what does God want to say to you today through Lewis's story? What is it that's most impacted you? I wonder, has it been about purpose? Is God speaking to you about purpose this morning? that perhaps God has kept you alive that you might fulfill his plans for your life. Maybe some of you, you've been through car accidents or difficulties where you think, I should have died in that moment. But God has preserved your life for a reason, that he has plans for your life that go way beyond comfort and being well-fed. Or has this morning been about self-reliance? God's saying to you, you are made not just to trust in yourself, but ultimately to trust and to follow him. That you're sure you've got abilities, but you can't stake your life on that. Ultimately, we all need help from the outside. We all need rescuing. Or has it been about forgiveness? I felt as I was preparing that for some of us, it might not be so severe, but we've got someone in our life who would be an equivalent of the bird. Someone we wish we'd never met them, never met, that they were never in our lives. And if we're honest, we carry fear and bitterness towards that person. Perhaps, like Louis, for you, this morning is the morning to lay that down and to say, God, I'm going to give that over to you. Justice and judgment belongs to the Lord. Instead, I'm going to choose to forgive and even pray for those who persecute me. So I wonder which one of those it is for you. 
As we close, why don't we stand and pray together? And we'll just ask that God would seal these things in our hearts. Is that all right? Kids, I hope you managed to circle all the words. You can come down the front and show us. Do you want to stand with me? And I'm just going to pray for us as we close. Perhaps you just want to quieten your heart. and We say to you, Father, we want to just rest in your presence a moment. Holy Spirit, come and rest on us. I pray for every one of us here. Thank you that you've got things to say to each one of us. That you're not a distant, disinterested God, but you love us and want to be involved in our lives.